return this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll pick up for continuity in verse 4. I'll be reading down through verse 13. While you're finding your place this morning, just a brief word about that hymn we just sang. Uh, words were particularly lively in my mind and heart this morning as uh, we sang through that song. Obviously, the tune is uh, better known as another hymn, but those words were particularly insightful. And I sought to think, why in the world are those words not been on the forefront of our thinking more often? And then I looked down at the bottom of the page and saw who the author of the words were. The author of the words is one who has poor evangelical reputation. Nonetheless, his uh, words are stellar. And uh, I found my own heart easily praying that hymn along with you this morning as we sang it. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house, and on thy gates. It shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities, which thou buildest not, and houses full of good things, which thou fillest not, and wells digged, which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees, which thou plantest not. When thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. Father, we thank you for the blessed continuity that we see in the pages of the scriptural record. There are so many links, so many connections, so many depths to be explored. And when we take the time to think upon them and to chase them in study, all oh, the blessed things we see that we might savor and then show them to others from thy word. Help us then as we return again to this familiar text and look at the pattern of life and living for the Jewish people in the land of promise to make those righteous parallels to those of us who are your people today living the life of Christ, the life of promise with the endowment of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the occasion today to think upon the uniqueness of ministry-minded oversight. We pray that you would utilize the text in our lives to convince, to persuade, to motivate, and to correct. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. God is sovereign. He rules over all. He is supreme. 
He is the uncreated creator. No one here is surprised by such declarations of biblical truth. The good theologian reminds us that technically, sovereignty is not an attribute of God, but rather an activity of God in relationship to the universe. God governs over all things. He exercises sovereign dominion over everything. He is large, and he is absolutely in charge of everything. When you actually read the Holy Scriptures, the thing that is surprising about the sovereignty of God is its loving desire to serve the creation made. Every Islamic would agree with the words, God is sovereign. He rules over all. He is supreme. The uncreated creator. Why, I could get an amen at the local mosque with those declarations. But when I speak of the loving desire of God to serve the creation he made, the Islamic must stand outside the door in unbelief. For nothing in the Koran represents the love of God as you and I commonly speak of it in the pages of the B-I-B-L-E. We get to preach the truth that God cares, that he is merciful, that God the creator willingly serves the creation. And of course we know that the absolute height of that service is bound up in the truth of the incarnation of Christ and the cross. God in Christ became man that he might save mankind from sin and death. Christ is the God who serves. His is sovereign service driven by love. His is sovereign service driven by love. As the sovereign one, no created angel, nor any man, nor anything could make God, sir. But we are told time and again that Yahweh is a serving sovereign. He is a ministry-minded overseer. He is not a genie who serves our lust. He is not a despot detached from our well-being. He is a ministry-minded overseer. It is clear in the record of Genesis that God made Adam to be, in his image, a ministry-minded overseer. Living under God, 
and over earthly things is the reality of God's creative design for all humanity. Adam and his wife helper were given responsibility over the earthly creation. This under-over relationship with God is the primary characteristic of being made in God's image. Sure, man has intellect. Sure, man has uh, uh, emotion. Sure, man has uh, the dimension of spirituality. Uh, that certainly is true and reflective of God's image. But the thing that is most important to note out of Genesis concerning the image of God and as it's stamped upon man is this idea of ministry-minded oversight. God is the ultimate ministry-minded overseer. He made man to be ministry-minded overseers. God's word to Adam and Eve is that they were given dominion and told to, quote, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it. Genesis 1.28. Man was created to possess ministry-minded oversight. While sin's entry into the world messed up the operation of man's stewardship, God's promise of redemption uh, and restatement of responsibility under difficulty are clearly stated. In other words, just because man sinned did not take away uh, God's design of ministry-minded oversight. It is likewise clear upon study that the Shema, as we've come to it in Deuteronomy chapter 6 again, that God's plan for Israelis living in the land of promise was for them to function as ministry-minded overseers. And the sermon, if you're ready to check out now, let me just give you the end of it. Uh, uh, God wants his people to function after the glorious pattern of his own person. He is a ministry-minded overseer. He wants mothers to be ministry-minded overseers. He wants fathers to be uh, ministry-minded overseers. He wants teenagers to be ministry-minded overseers. He wants pastors and deacons to be ministry-minded overseers. That's the end of the sermon. Now, we are familiar with the New Testament terms that reflect this idea of ministry-mindedness in oversight, and those terms are steward, and servant. Uh, steward has to do with management, not as an owner, but a manager. And servant has to do with service. Every believer is under God, a steward, and over things is appointed by God to serve God. Every believer is a steward in some regard. Furthermore, every believer is to lovingly serve God in the exercise of his or her appointed stewardship. When the Apostle Peter picked up pen, driven by the Spirit of God, to write of such things, he said, quote, Every man hath received the gift. Even so, minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Peter says, every person in the pew is gifted of God. Say, I am gifted. Say it. Now, you didn't say it like you meant it. You said it like somebody was going to hear you, and I want them to hear you. Say it again. I am gifted. And then add these words. I am gifted from God. I am gifted from God. Say it. Okay, then, what God says is you are supposed to employ that gift. 
in service to God's glory. That's ministry-minded oversight. Every believer in Christ today, like every Israeli in the day of Moses and Joshua, is to function as a ministry-minded overseer. And so this morning we're looking, again, at the Shema in the whole. We're looking at Deuteronomy 6, prescriptive of life in the land of promise for Jewish people. We're looking at it for the pattern of service-minded stewardship ministry-minded oversight or service-minded stewardship under God and over stuff. Number one, ministry-minded overseers wear the truth and love of God morning, noon, and night, verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. The description of living and teaching diligence, verse 7, encompasses the walking uh, moments of every single day, the waking moment of every single day. God's truth and love were to be manifest in life day after day, morning, noon, and night. Further, verse 8 speaks of binding the truth and love of God on the hand and between the eyes. Now, I have seen people that write things on their hand uh, so that they don't forget them, but uh, unless you can... Uh, have a find a mirror it's pretty stupid to write something on your forehead because you'll never see it although the person that you talk to may well I do remember that uh, uh, when they uh, uh, did the repairs on my on my leg some years ago uh, that the surgeon came in with a with a uh, permanent marker and wrote on the leg that he was supposed to cut on as if you couldn't tell I thought boy this guy must really be a loopy guy if he can't figure out which one needs surgery but nonetheless nonetheless you have binding the words of God relative to truth and love uh, to the hand and between the eyes. Now, most everyone here knows that in Judaism, the thought is that this is referring to the literal wearing of this Bible portion as strapped to the arm and the forehead. They're called phylacteries, and they are tied around the non-dominant arm. That would be for a right-handed person, their left arm, and forehead. Uh, they uh, teach that this is what God really wanted people to do, was to put Scripture in a little box and then tie it around your arm and then tie it around your head. Uh, you know, it, it's weird what religious people come up with. And so the question, when you read, bind them upon your hand and upon the, between the frontlets of your eyes, the question is, is what, is what God really wanted uh, us to put Bible portions in a box and uh, wrap them around our hands or wrap them around our heads? Now, there have been times I'd like to wrap 
the word of God around the head of some teenager, but uh, that's another story. That's a different situation. Uh, no, the reality is here that, uh, uh, that uh, we should not understand that God's word here to bind the word on the hand and on between the eyes, we shouldn't understand it as being a physical thing. Why shouldn't we understand it that way? Well, because we find in the verse the word sign, S-I-G-N, and we find the word as, meaning that these words are coupled with a grammatical presentation in which we're being told that they are symbolic and that they represent something. And so the verse in the whole again says, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. They shall not be frontlets between thy eyes. They shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And so those words indicate that we are to understand verse 8 in the sense of similitude or likening. In the former statement, relative to this, under the law as recorded in the book of Exodus, you have the additional words memorial and token used. So concerning the binding of the hand and the frontlets between the eyes, there are four biblical words in the whole that govern our understanding of the binding. Sign, as, memorial, and token. We are also told back in Exodus 13 that the purpose of this binding of the truth is that God's word might be in our mouth. Meaning that when we speak to others, that we speak the truth of God and the love of God uh, in all blessed clarity, in affirmation of the teaching of God and the love of God, as is clearly indicated back in verse 7. Now, here are two more reasons why I say that this binding is not literal. Number one, there is no biblical or extra-biblical evidence that Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, or the writing prophets wore phylacteries as a common practice. So, here is Moses writing Deuteronomy... And he does speak on behalf of God, but when he says I, he's referring to himself on behalf of God. And there's no evidence that Moses ever uh, put Bible portions in a little box and wrapped them around his hand or stuck them around his, uh, his, uh, his head like an old NBA sweatband. None of that. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. And then secondly, there's also no reverence, uh, evidence of the Lord Jesus in the record of the New Testament uh, wearing phylactrophy. Uh, none, no evidence of it. So none of the Bible characters, including the Lord himself, are recorded as to wearing phylacteries. And of course, then there is the record of the Lord in the New Testament criticizing, the Lord criticizing the external show of religion as was represented in the dress of the Pharisees. Of course, we're living quite far apart from the truth and the love of God held dear and expressed under Shema. The truth and love of God bound on the hand speaks of the truth and love of God governing activity and work. 
Bind the truth of God on your hand. Bind the truth of God between your eyes on your head. What does it mean? It means let the word of God and the love of God govern your activity and work. People quite naturally package their lives in categories like home life, work life, worship life. Verse 7 emphasizes the necessity of truth and love of God at home. And the first phrase of verse 8 emphasizes the necessity of the truth and love of God in work and recreation. When you bind the truth of God upon your hand, then anything you do, that could be digging a ditch. That could be shooting a basketball. That could be anything you do. That everything you do comes under, governed by, the truth and love of God. That's the idea of binding in the hand. Uh, uh, binding in regards to the front of the head speaks of thought life and the forefront of thought life, meaning get the word of God in there. Get the word of God in there. Let your life be, co be construed. Let it be thought of. Let it be designed. Let your plans be that which are governed by the truth and the love of God. I don't need to tell most of you that the New Testament epistles contain repeated exhortations for us in Christ to walk in truth and in love. The Apostle John says it, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before God. Of course, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says, Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh. The well-dressed believer to enter the land of promise back in the day of Deuteronomy 6 was to be all decked out in the truth and love of God. Likewise, the well-dressed believer is to be decked out in the truth and love of God. It is to govern all of our doings. It is to govern all of our thinking. The Bible governing as to its expression of truth and love, all doing and all thinking. Number two, ministry-minded oversight also means writing God's truth and love on your post and gates. Verse 9, and thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy Games. The mezuzah, or doorpost, was a structural feature of every Jewish home. In modern Judaism, little decorative boxes adorn the trim of each doorway except for the bathroom. In the modern Jewish home, the gate, as is referenced here in verse 9, is in scripture the marketplace of business. You went to the gate to stand before the court of elders. You went to the gate to buy 
and to sell. The gate is representative of the marketplace. The point being that God's truth and love are to govern all facets of life at home and away from home. At home and work, at home and business, at home and grocery store, at home and court, at home and business. Last holiday season, I received a small gift from a member of this congregation who knows I, I like my coffee. No, I did not put coffee in it this morning. But the mug that they bought me says, today's forecast, God reigns and the sun shines. And reigns is R-E-I-G-N-S and the sun is capital S-O-N, shines. The statement is, today's forecast, God reigns and the sun shines. Uh, that member thought that that perspective would be a good thing for this preacher. And I absolutely agree. And not only a good perspective for this preacher, but that would be a good perspective for you this week. I lost that perspective yesterday for a few hours. It's hard to live under this forecast. God reigns and the sun shines. It's easy sometimes in the midst of difficulty to forget that God reigns and that the sun shines. It's hard sometimes to remember. But oh, what a beautiful thing to drink on your cup in the morning. That God reigns and the sun shines. Listen, truth and love is to govern our lives at home, doorpost and gate, marketplace, the agora, the place where people are engaged one with another. The mug minister's perspective in the truth and love of God to my soul whenever it's used. Godly perspective is to be maintained in every facet of earthly life every day. It was the pattern under the law. It is to be the pattern for believers in the Lord. You and I have such a blessed mental communication in the scriptures. Let me just remind you of one New Testament passage. Philippians chapter 4 this morning. Quickly in review. Philippians chapter 4. And verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Let your moderation, your sweet reasonableness, your stability, your sweet stability in life, let that be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. It doesn't mean the Lord's coming soon. It means the Lord is present. The Lord is present. Be careful for nothing. Is it commending negligence? No. It's saying don't be anxious. Don't worry about things in this world. Be anxious for nothing. Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, 
Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, says Paul, do. Do them. Do it. And the peace of God, the God of peace, shall be with you. Wow. What a beautiful commentary on the truth and love of God uh, bound on the hand and the mind, bound and painted, written on the post and at the gate. A life that is governed by the truth and love of God, the truth and love of God, exactly as it is presented to us in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6. This was the pattern under the Old Testament law for living in the land. And as we just read in Philippians 4, it is the pattern for life in the Lord here and now. Well, back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and number 3. Ministry-minded oversight also means hearing and sharing the righteous warnings of the Scripture based upon God's truth and love, verses 10 to 12. Then it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which, thou, which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, Houses full of good things which thou fillest not, wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not, uh, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware, lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Truth and love are to govern the hand and the mind. Truth and love are to govern uh, the doorpost and the gate. Uh, truth and love are to drive our righteous exhortations and warnings one to another and to our own soul as to how easy it is to forget about God. Our text tells us and reminds us of a particular truth that prosperity inclines the soul towards forgetfulness. Israel was to enjoy the land of promise. And they were to enjoy a wide range of physical blessings at God's own hand without personal toil and expense. Those words that are read there in verse 10 and 11 uh, remind me of the fact that in this generation we have so much that some of us would not be, cons be considered to be such a good thing uh, to get a house that was already furnished but the idea that I'd like to furnish it myself. Of course, that presumes upon the fact that you have wherewithal to furnish it yourself. But Israel was taken in the land of promise, and, and crops were already planted that they got to harvest that they didn't plant. Houses were already built that they got to live in that they didn't build. Waters were, water wells were already dug that they were able to get for themselves uh, 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 water, uh, uh, physical water uh, that they didn't dig and all because of the blessing of God in the land of promise. 
And so they were not only to keep, as it were, the truth of God and the love of God close at hand, the hand close at hand and close in the mind and, and close, as it were, on the, on the post and the gate, but they were to particularly focus upon the truth and love of God, knowing that in days of prosperity, when things are going good, we tend to say to the Lord, I got it from here. I'll drive now. I'll take over now. I'll direct now. So often, the Lord's own blessings yield in us an unwarranted confidence in ourselves. It shouldn't. If we keep the love and truth of God in mind, in heart, in hand, then we'll prevent thinking confidently about ourselves apart from God. But inherent in times called good, fun, and amusing is the serious danger of forgetting that every good and perfect gift comes from above. One of the unique experiences of ministry for me, especially early on, uh, as we were active in uh, uh, doing things uh, with uh, especially young people in uh, the Lord's service, is those special times in which something fun and good and amusing was planned. And so often as the pastoral leader overseeing the aspect of that group in which fun and amusement and, uh, and, and good things were to be enjoyed. So often it seemed that back at home somebody was near death or back at home somebody was very sick or back at home uh, some saint was uniquely suffering under a heavy hand of providence. And uh, I'm sure you'll understand that sometimes pastorally, even though I was in some of the funnest places on the planet. My overall demeanor, demeanor was not so gri gripped by the ride or the candy or the snacks or the fun. In fact, I remember early on complaining to Sherry that sometimes in ministry it's just hard to be where you actually are. And that works both ways. But nonetheless, this idea of enjoyment is part of God's design for us. We are to enjoy life in the Lord, just like Israel was to enjoy life in the land. But inherent in times called good, fun, and amusing is serious danger of forgetting that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Thus the wise man, Agur, in Proverbs 30, asks for neither riches nor poverty, seeing personal dangers in both relative to his relationship with God. He saw that if he was uniquely blessed and rich, he might forget God. And he saw that if he were poor, that he might consider that he was being mistreated by God and think poorly and contemptuously 
concerning God. And so, Agur, the wise man in Proverbs 30, prays a prayer, and it's a beautiful prayer, asking neither for riches nor for poverty, seeing dangers in both riches and poverty. God's truth and love is to govern our earthly experiences in poverty and prosperity. Thus, New Testament, Paul testifies in that same fourth chapter in Philippians. You don't need to turn back there, but you just keep reading when you go home. But Paul continues to testify in that fourth chapter of Philippians that he knows, quote, how to be abased and how to abound everywhere and in all things instructed, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Every child of God is to learn how to live without. Let me say that again. Every child of God is to learn how to live without. Every child of God is to learn how to live with a lot. Now, what I like to do is sign up for a lot classes and forget the without classes. I'm happy to sign up for a lot. Not so happy to sign up for without. But I tell you that some of the best things I know about God... Some of the best things I've seen in his word have come in moments in which I was indeed rather desperately without. When Sherry and I look at each other in life and ministry, I can say to her, she can say to me, this as an honest reality. We know how to live without. We've lived without money. We've lived without health insurance. We've lived without support. We've lived without. We know how to live without. And you don't have to be around many of God's people very long until you know many of them don't know how to do that. And yet Sherry and I also, bless the Lord, have had some a lot classes. We've been in situations and circumstances in which there's been abundancy and abounding experiences. And here's the truth of the text. God's truth and love is to govern all our earthly experiences. You need God's truth and love when you are without. You need God's truth and love when you got it all. Because there are real dangers in both bents and conditions in your life. Oh, that truth and grace would be bound on the hand and the head. Oh, that truth and grace would be written on the door and the gate. Oh, that truth and grace would govern our lives so as to properly warn us in days of prosperity and, frankly, poverty. Because when things are good, easy to forget God.
things are bad, it's easy to curse God. How would you like a wife like Job's who said to the dear man, just curse God and die? Helpmate like that would be better married to somebody else. <laughs> but nonetheless, that's what she said. Listen, God's truth and love of necessity ought to govern our earthly experiences. Let me just say something to this church as a whole. This church has known an awful lot. 